I'm Alex Perrine, a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. You're listening to The Politics of Everything, a podcast about the intersection of culture, politics, and media. Each week, we'll interview a writer about a recent story. And at the end of every episode, we catch up with campaign reporter Walter Shapiro, who is following the 2020 election closely for The New Republic. Welcome to The Politics of Everything. This week, I'll be talking to Alex about the future of his vaping habit. We'll be talking about the decision to have children in an age of climate crisis. And finally, Walter will be telling us why we have no idea what will happen in Iowa. So Alex, you are the person I know who probably knows most about vaping. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I know almost nothing. I know okay, almost okay. nothing. But I have noticed that vaping has been in the news a lot lately. Yes, it has. And yes. um, its future seems sort of in peril. <laughs> Perhaps, yes. <laughs> the future of vaping is uncertain, I would say. Um, the president in the Oval Office announced that he was going to ask the FDA to ban most e-cigarettes. And this came sort of in the wake of all of these stories that have been popping up all over the country of people being hospitalized and even dying after use of e-cigarettes. But the president really framed it as much more about keeping the kids off of the vapes. <laughs> because the interesting thing is they're only banning most flavored e-cigarettes. It's not a blanket ban. Okay, so some of the flavors I see mentioned, like Swedish Fish and like Sour Patch Kids. Yeah, I mean, I should clarify that. I own a Jewel and I vape. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like a vaping person. Like there are culturally, there are vaping people, like people who build their own rigs, people who make their own vape juice. So you're a flavored vape Vapor? Oh, I know. I, I just use the tobacco <laughs> flavored ones. Oh, okay. I don't need my, because I, I am and was a cigarette smoker and I have not successfully quit cigarettes, but for a while I was using it as a way to go for a, a day or two at a time without having a cigarette and it actually worked really well. So I stuck with the tobacco flavored ones and under the Trump's regulations, I will have no problem buying these until Andrew Cuomo bans them. The people who are in support of this ban are presenting it as being like a child welfare yeah. kind of act. Yeah. So what do you say to that? Well, so, so if, you, if you take the world as it currently exists, where jeweling is hugely popular among teenagers, and one of the things they enjoy about it is that there are many fun flavors of jewel. In that world, very few of them are going to then sign up for the cigarette smoking experience, which features only two flavors. Which are kind of disgusting <laughs> people yeah, neither, who haven't yes. grown to love them. You really do have to <laughs> learn to like either one of them. So that, I imagine, would be why I would think it unlikely that that many people who began as addicts of e-cigarettes would make the switch to cigarettes until the FDA says, well, we're actually going to make it next to impossible for you to get e-cigarettes. Now, the other thing about this is you can tell in the way this is covered because it's covered as a youth moral panic. There is a separate public health issue happening which deserves urgent scrutiny, which is that people have been getting sick and in some cases dying mysteriously, we don't know why, from vaping in some form. Now, the data is kind of sketchy because there's a lot of sort of scattered reports from all over the country and they're not giving a lot of information in some cases. For the most part, it seems like people are falling ill, developing like fast-acting pneumonia or respiratory distress. For the most part, it's happening after vaping marijuana or vaping cannabis, which mm -hmm. is the other thing you can 
vape. We're talking about black market, like not legalized, regulated, commercially available cannabis vaping, but people, they bought it on a street corner or, you know, from the back of a shop or something like that, which sounds to me very much like in a lot of drug legalization cases, the answer is like legalize and regulate it. And then people mm-hmm. won't be getting sick and dying from mysterious unknown chemicals added to completely unregulated marijuana vape juice. But obviously the focus of the president's Oval Office address was not, well, we got to make sure we are regulating cannabis vape juice to be as healthy as possible. The focus was weirdly uh, Baron Trump, who is 13 years old. (laughs) And I think it's like exceedingly likely that the president decided to ban vaping in most forms because Barron got caught vaping. Wait, was was Barron actually mentioned (laughs) in this? Or this is just there was a bizarre I totally missed this. Yeah, well the the deal was this was Melania's idea, according to the president. So he had Melania Trump with him. And he had a very strange moment where he said something along the lines of Melania has a son who <laughs> like, Melania not, has a son. But not like our it was like Melania's <laughs> son, Baron. It has not been reported that Baron was caught vaping. This is my, you know, this canon is a in my head only. Scenario. But uh, it reminds me of Tipper Gore catching her daughter listening to Darling Nikki by Prince and then like launching, <laughs> launching the Parents Music Resource Center, which was basically like, we got to get these filthy Prince albums out of the hands of our teenage daughters. The thing is, like, the FDA is not regulating e-cigarettes yet, but it has been supposed to regulate them for years. And it was the election of Donald Trump which postponed the start date of the regulation of e-cigarettes. It was supposed to happen in, I think, 2018. And then his FDA was like, no, we'll give him until 2022 to, like, sort everything Just out. make sure they've really, like, expanded their markets. And yeah, plenty no, of people <laughs> hope before we start looking into this too closely. Exactly. And, like, so as speaking of someone who has a jewel and vapes and, like, believes it to be safer than cigarette smoking. I would like very much for the FDA to have been devoting the last few years to aggressively researching whether or not that is the case Mm -hmm. instead of wasting that time and then announcing a ban on caramel-flavored vapes because teens are doing it. It's like a, a, a bat signal went off for politicians like Cuomo and like Chuck Schumer. They live for panic. Like teen drug panic is like their favorite thing to do. So yeah, Cuomo, I haven't even read the details, but he saw someone else like getting headlines for this. It was like, we're banning vapes now. So yeah, the idea is like, oh, we must ban this stuff right now, except cigarettes, because of course we can't do anything about cigarettes. Right. That's, that's what I mean when I say it's about moral panic rather than public health. Politicians like Chuck Schumer, when they saw that Four Loco was becoming popular. <laughs> they said, my God, we've got to ban this. Teens are drinking Four Loco and doing Four Loco crimes across the, <laughs> across the state. Um, at no point was someone like, we have to ban the private combination of caffeine and alcohol, mm-hmm. right? No one was even like, we have to ban high alcohol spirits. It was simply this one product that was very sweet that they could argue was marketed to children. But like the actual public health issue is in the alcohol. (laughs) And so I think that as a politician, you have to say, my goal is to minimize harm and here's how we're going to take steps to minimize harm, which would not involve doing any of this. It would involve an entirely different sort of set of proposals. Or you just are out to basically get headlines for making it harder for kids to get something. 
Mm-hmm. Although if there is a substantive difference, it seems to be that these lung diseases are developing very quickly. Yeah, that's what is scary Whereas, about them. And, very, and the thing with acting. cigarettes and the thing that tobacco manufacturers have always benefited from is like no one smokes one cigarette or cigarettes for a year and then gets and lung then cancer. And then immediately gets so lung cancer. You get cancer, it when yeah. you're 60 or 50. Yeah. So that's and why- by then you have kind of internalized a lifetime of moral guilt yeah. for it, uh, yeah. rightly or wrongly. And you end up taking responsibility for something that actually is on the manufacturer. Yeah. Whereas with these e-cigarettes, because it happens so quickly, it's easier to blame the e-cigarette company. And that's what makes it. That's also what makes it very scary. And what makes the idea of like an immediate ban actually much more defensible than it would be in other cases if it weren't for those weird exemptions. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, an immediate ban too would still have the same side effect of it not ending the black market. But I think it like with a fast acting, scary sort of not quite epidemic like this, yeah, sure, like I can see the ban makes sense. But like do it intelligently, please. <laughs> Spoken like a true vapor. Please ban the thing I'm addicted to yes. intelligently. Like, yes, if you put must. some thought into it first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Happy vaping. Thank you. For our main story today, we're talking to Emily Atkin, a contributing editor at The New Republic, who looked into how millennials are feeling about having children in an era of climate crisis. We're starting with a clip from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Instagram, which appeared back in February. Our planet is going to face disaster if we don't turn the ship around. There's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult And it does lead, I think, young people to a legitimate question. You know, is it okay to still have children? So is it true, is it it a trend that millennials are not having children because they're terrified of catastrophic climate change? Well, I've heard, certainly my friends have talked about it, but I also saw that AOC posted about it. Mm -hmm. And also Prince Harry gave an interview in July where he talked about only having two kids. Right. Because of climate change. I also saw that Miley Cyrus has posted about this. Has she? <laughs> so that's three people. <laughs> well, that, that makes it a trend. Uh, someone who has been thinking about it a lot more than us and who's been doing some reporting into it is Emily Atkin, who is our colleague at The New Republic. And she's here now to tell us what she has learned about this. Hey, guys. What's up? Yeah, I mean, I think what Prince Harry was saying when he says two babies is the idea is that you replace yourselves on the earth. I mean, I think for a lot of people who are thinking about whether it's okay to have kids in the era of climate change, it can be about two things. It's either about adding to your personal carbon footprint by adding more children to the planet. If you add a person, you're adding the entire carbon footprint of that person throughout their life and not wanting to do that. Or there's sort of the moral consideration of, do I want to birth a child into a world that is rapidly dying? Um, Mm. And that, you know, right now the trend doesn't look great for preventing these rapid catastrophic effects from occurring. So what inspired you to start looking into this? So I'm a climate change reporter by trade. (laughs) So I'm always thinking about climate change. It's what they pay me the big bucks for. (laughs) And um, but also I live my life every day as a 29-year-old, almost 30-year-old woman in D.C., And most of my friends are of a similar age, not a little older, in their mid-30s. And I live in a relatively childless world. I don't actually have any close friends who have babies 
or even young children. And not to brag, but I have a lot of friends. <laughs> um, and they're really, children are just not a part of my life. And so, you know, I, I see that and then I start seeing all these big names talking about it. And then, you know, my social media feeds are all climate related and people are talking about their anxiety about climate change a lot. So are there any statistics on birth rates that would fit with the stories that you've been hearing about people saying that climate change is making them reconsider whether they would have kids? Yeah. I mean, right now, the U.S. birth rate is at its lowest rate in 32 years, and that's according to CDC data. And there's a report in NPR where an expert who analyzed that data said that a large factor in that is young people's uncertainty about their children's future. There's been a lot of anecdotal evidence, a lot of small polls that reporters have done. The New York Times did something last year where they interviewed more than a dozen people ages 18 to 43 and found that climate change played a really large role in most of those people's decision making not to have children. One thing I did, which I think every reporter does now, is I just asked my Twitter followers, um, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, it's not really a representative sample of the population. My Twitter followers lean concerned about climate change, obviously. They're pretty concerned or they don't believe it and they follow me because they want to insult (laughs) me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fine. Okay, so you did a poll. And what, what came out of this poll? So I just said, if you're somebody who explicitly is not going to have kids because of climate change and you'd be willing to be interviewed for a story, send me a direct message. Over the course of 24 hours, I got over 50 messages. Wow. Can you read us a couple? I actually have a few. Hold on. So one woman said, even though my spouse and I have always been on the fence about having kids, the current inaction on addressing greenhouse gas emissions makes me feel like I don't have a choice. It seems cruel to bring a person into the world with a significant chance of societal collapse. Another person, a man, said, I won't have any kids due to my dark and bleak vision for our near-term future, one of permanent degradation and loss. The thought of my beloved child growing up in such a tragic context is more than I can bear. So yeah, I got pretty dark in my DMs. Yeah, those are, those are pretty intense DMs. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to this one woman on the phone. as one of the women who DM'd me. I'm 26 years old. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I am a photographer. She wants kids. Her mom keeps asking her when she's going to have babies. I've just always thought that I was going to have kids because that's just kind of what you do. You grow up and you go to school, you graduate, you get married, you have kids, you know. And I get pressure from coworkers. I get pressure from family members, from my parents. And it's so taboo to say that you're not going to have kids. And especially if you say why, and it's like, well, because of climate change, then I feel like people kind of think I'm crazy. And she says, I can't. I can't do that. I can't. It just crushes her to think about what that world might look like for her kid. I just, I cannot imagine myself carrying a baby for nine months and not being able to ensure that they have a future too. So before you started going really deep into the reporting on this, what was your feeling about having kids? Do you remember the moment that you first thought about climate change as a factor in your decision to have kids or not? Was there a kind of epiphany? Yeah, I came across a study this year that said the most meaningful thing you could do to reduce your carbon footprint as an individual would be to have fewer children. It basically quantifies the carbon footprint of having a child versus 
other things you can do personally to reduce your own carbon footprint. And the gist of the study is that having fewer children or having one less child is the most significant thing you can do as a person to reduce your carbon footprint. It is equivalent to taking 10 cars off of the road. It's equivalent to having a dozen teenagers recycle more throughout their entire teenage years. It's equivalent to maybe 50 people stopping eating meat. So if you really want to reduce your carbon footprint, this study says this is the most significant individual action you can take. You know, with all of the other uncertainty surrounding whether or not it might be a good decision for me to get pregnant one day, seeing that study sort of immediately just made me think to myself, oh, well, that's that. <laughs> Guess I won't be having a kid. I remember reading about that study, but I actually don't know a whole lot about it. Was it limited to Americans or was it worldwide? So the methodology of the paper is a little complicated because the researchers looked at 39 different peer-reviewed papers and government reports and other programs that look at how your lifestyle choices might affect climate change. And those papers span the gamut of different populations, right? Mm -hmm. So this study is a summary of studies that shows the different ways that your carbon footprint could vary if you ate this much meat, had this many kids, uh, recycled this much, drove this many times per sure. year. And so that's a culmination of research. And all those papers make different assumptions about who you are as a person. So if you're from a higher emitting country, then you as a person just like emit more per capita sure, in your yeah. country. And so yeah. it's it's a complicated— that's, sort of what I, that's what I was sort of getting at, too, because— one additional wealthy American certainly will have a larger carbon footprint than an additional poor person born in the global south. Right. So we're talking about us. Yes. Okay. Living in an industrialized nation. Sure. So we talked a lot about how this hypothetical child could make the world worse because they're the equivalent of 50 cars on the road and so on. But there's also another piece of this, which is that say you do have a child— a lot of people that you spoke to and just read the messages from seem to be really concerned that that child would have an exceptionally traumatic and difficult existence. I mean, do you want to know about what the world might look like if we don't rapidly reduce well, carbon emissions? Because well, it's scary. It's more, I mean, people have reason be, to be scared. If we don't start rapidly, and I mean rapidly, decarbonizing our industrialized economies, we'll hit 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming by probably the year 2035, 2040. At 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, the sea level rises about a foot. Glaciers in the Himalayas that supply water to billions in China, Indonesia, Bangladesh, those melt and start to dry off. And then there start to be conflicts over water Desertification starts happening all over the world. It makes it harder to produce agriculture, and people start migrating away from where they live to find better places to live. But then, you know, we live in a nationalist kind of growing world. Borders start closing. And unless we—I mean, I'm talking about a worst-case scenario. So I think we're, we live in a pretty broadly similar milieu. I'm in my early 30s. I live in New York. Most of my friends are college-educated. 
And similarly, there are not very many children among my friend group, except for me. (laughs) I'm a father. You're not a child. So you made it sound like (laughs) you're a child. (laughs) Except for me. I'm the baby. Uh, (laughs) The only kid in my friend group. (laughs) So to rephrase, there are not there are not many parents in my peer group and my among my friends, the people I went to college with. But my feeling is that, and these are generally socially responsible people who do worry about these things. But my feeling is that it's about the precarity of their own lives. And I think that sense of anxiety about the future is also just sort of an immediate material concern as much as it is a problem that they are, are thinking about for their children down the line. And I do wonder if there are people, like maybe some of the people who DM'd you even, who are using climate change as almost an excuse for their anxieties about other things. In some sense, climate change almost acts as a way out, you know, because I already have all these selfish considerations of why I might not want to have a kid. And all of a sudden I'm confronted with, it's the most important thing you can do to reduce your carbon footprint. And I'm like, well, there it is, you know, (laughs) there it is. Because now I can make it be about my desire to make the world better for the children that already live here rather than thinking about the life of my hypothetical child that doesn't even exist yet. You spoke to the writer and book critic Christine Smallwood about this. What did she say? She speculated she she has a child, and she said that she does believe that to a certain extent some people who suffer from climate anxiety and don't want to have a kid because of it may just be anxious people in general. I think this is a very fearful time. I think there's a lot of good reasons to be afraid and anxious right now. And I think sometimes people call that, I don't want to have kids because of climate. So my kids too, uh, I got David Wallace Wells' book. I was terrified to read it. Like I was literally too anxious to read it. And, so uh, what David Wallace Wells' book is? The Uninhabitable Earth, which is it's about climate change. And it's describing basically many of the things you're talking about, the, the, the sort of worst case scenarios. And uh, you know, I felt a great deal of anxiety about the world he would grow up in. But I did think it was interesting because you actually talked to him, didn't you, when you were sort of reporting this out? So David is very interesting because David knows a lot about what the worst-case scenario world looks like. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he's literally written the book on the worst-case scenario world. And David wants to have another kid Mm -hmm. because he wants his child right now to have a sibling. You know, just being totally honest, I think probably both of us still would like to have more than one kid. And it may change over time. I mean, one of the features of this whole conversation, I think, is that I don't don't just mean climate and having kids generally. I mean, like, climate change generally is that a lot of this often, like, just takes a long time to sink in. Um, And, you know, you can be aware of facts before they really start to fundamentally shape your perspective on the world. And he told me a lot about how even he, as an expert in this field, you know, he has to live his life. And in order to do that, in order to live his life. He lives in a compartmentalized world where he knows very much that it might not be the most ethical decision, but this is what he and his family want. And he'll do his best to ensure a future that's not 
what happened in his book. I mean, that's why he wrote his book, yeah. right? So what's Christine's feeling about this? You know, she really cares about climate change and climate change has mobilized her to care about the future for her child. She had this child, then she read the IPCC report on 1.5 degrees Celsius, what happens in our world when we reach that point. And she thought about her child and she thought to herself, I got to do something. So she became involved in a group called Sunrise Parents or Sunrise Kids, actually. And it's an offset of the Sunrise Movement, which sort of popularized the Green New Deal. And it's a group of parents who go around speaking about the need to preserve a livable future for their children. Sunrise's goals, as you know, are the Green New Deal, but also to, you know, elect politicians who support the Green New Deal. And that is the other thing about having kids. Like, there is an argument that, like, we need to breed the revolution, right? That that we need to raise a generation of sensitive, more enlightened, more environmentally and socially conscious young people. What concerns me about it is that I worry about it leading not to a world where responsible upper middle class professional people decide to have one fewer child, but I worry that it leads to population control. I worry it leads to eugenicist ideas. I worry it leads to saying like, well, Prince Harry can have two kids, but we should sterilize these people. I get a little scared when I hear that kind of talk, but I, you're talking strictly about people who are making a conscious personal decision for themselves, right? We are not talking about coercive methods of population <laughs> control, and nor should anybody. Sure. Um, what that rhetoric always, uh, like, I think I've already mentioned this, but, like, a wealthy Westerner, especially an extremely wealthy person's climate footprint is so much larger than thousands and thousands of extremely poor people in the global south and elsewhere in the world. Like, that's what I find terrifying about that eco-fascism is the idea that we need to, we need to preserve this American way of life that is extremely highly emitting by— making the world miserable for people who aren't contributing barely anything to the problem. So is there any such thing as a carbon neutral child? <laughs> no, I'm asking seriously, because it feels like we should be getting close to that. No, there is, but not right now. For a carbon neutral child to exist, a carbon neutral child has to exist in a carbon neutral world. I actually spoke to this one researcher and he really made me think very differently about this issue. Well, my name is Dominic Roser. I'm a senior lecturer at the university in Switzerland, and my main focus is climate change and ethics. So I'm bombarded every single day with people telling me, you know, if I eat less meat, I can reduce my carbon footprint. If I yeah. don't take a plane, I can reduce my carbon footprint. Here comes this study saying the biggest thing I can do as a human being is to decide to have one less child or not have a child at all. And that seems super meaningful to me, at least when I'm thinking about meaningful actions that I can take. Yeah. I mean, isn't there value in talking about that? So if we want to get to zero emissions on this planet, this means we have to get to zero emissions per capita. So maybe we won't get to zero emissions, but let's hope we get to near zero emissions. And, you know, if each person's emissions are zero or near zero, then it hardly matters anymore how many people there are. Oh. So for me, actually, the core <laughs> question is how can we bring per capita emissions down to zero? And I, I think we should use all our societies, you know, brain power, all our energy, all our effort to go into this question right. rather than 
reducing population. So I think that's, in my view, that's the core question. I mean, look, we don't have that much time until we really have to do something, right? You know, we have 12 years to take action before we are locked into 1.5 degrees Celsius. We have to get a net zero economy by the year 2050. Mm-hmm. So the carbon footprint of your child right now, right. It, it's not really going to do the, much It's all them. the cumulative carbon of all the kids that have come already is the problem. Right. <laughs> and if we're not making a distinction always between first world children and third world children or the children of industrialized nations and the children of developing nations, then we're doing more harm than good. And also, I mean, look, what we're trying to do to solve climate change is have a net zero society, a society where— all carbon emissions, there are no more, right? Where wealth is equivalent to net zero. So every single person actually has a zero net carbon footprint. So what does it matter if there's 12 billion people or 8 billion people if we're all net zero? If everyone is at zero emissions. Yeah, I like the way of thinking about it. So should we even be talking about this? All right. Well, nice talking to you. See you later. Um, I want to go back to the idea that it has to all be personal choice. So you've said The way this can work, the way it can be effective is if it's personal choice, freely entered into. Are there any groups or are people organized around this at all? Or is it all people making individual decisions? There's one group that's gained attention. It's called Birth Strike. It started in Europe and it's a group of women that are just saying, we are not having kids until we know that the world is on a pathway that will be sustainable for them, that will be okay for them. And so that movement has gained some traction, although it it does seem to have gained a lot of traction with Tucker Carlson and Fox (laughs) News, who love to have the women of birth strike on to uh, chide them for their decision making. In an age of concern about climate change, some people have become opposed to the very idea of having children. It's a little early for me to be giving you advice, but I just want to end with this. I think you should have children. I think they solve a lot of problems and put things in perspective. You seem like a nice person. We don't person. have time. I bet you love it. <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> that was yeah. a mind-blowing sound. Well, this is, uh, that's perfect. But yeah, so Tucker Carlson, he'll have someone from Birthright on and just sort of yell at them and harangue them, right? And just be like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it, this is it's all generational politics here. And Tucker Carlson's older audience... These shows exist to make old people mad at their grandkids. It's tied up in this whole bucket of anxieties that older people don't understand about the difficulties of the society they gave us. <laughs> this is this is a true story. Once one of Tucker Carlson's bookers reached out to me and asked me if I would come on the show to defend the idea that we should be encouraging people to have less children because of climate change. And I was like, I mean, I'll come on to say why people might say that or why people might be having less kids due to climate change, but I'm not going to tell people how many kids they should have. And they're like, all right, we'll get someone else. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, weren't, you weren't the right kind of punching bag for him. No, it's because he needs someone that's going to make us actually concerned good faith people look, look ridiculous, look like idiots. Yeah. So now you've spoken to several people who've made really compelling arguments for having children or for not letting climate change prevent you from making that decision if you want to. And you've also spoken to someone who made a really strong case that the whole discourse around not having kids because of climate actually isn't helpful. Has that changed the way you feel? 
Yeah, it really has. I mean, it hasn't changed how I feel about myself having children, but it has changed how I feel about saying that the reason is because it's the biggest thing you can do to reduce your personal carbon footprint. I'm now not really convinced that it's that important how many people are on the planet, at least when it comes to climate change. And then I start thinking about that. And then all of a sudden I'm going back into my DMs and all of these people are saying to me, I'm giving up my dream of having children because of climate change, because I'm too scared or because I really don't want to contribute to this problem. And it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but I feel that I need to do it. And all of a sudden I'm just thinking to myself, no, don't do it. Do it. (laughs) You should do it. You should be optimistic that we are going to solve this problem and that your kids are going to be a part of solving this problem. Right. So we're talking about an issue that is one of the most personal of issues, whether you become a parent, whether you have a child. And we've been talking about the way politics can enter into that decision. In this case, thinking about the climate crisis and what you can do. And it seems like at the end of this journey, actually, everything you found points us back towards the political and away from the personal, which is to say, if you really want to do something about climate, you should go out there and be an activist, decarbonize the economy. If we are going to prevent this hellscape world, we need people to channel their anxiety into something productive. Like, we need that. And then if having a kid will make you happier and if it will help you to do that after the, you know, diaper changing stage when you like you're get busy, then do it. Yeah, I think manifest your anxiety into something productive would be a good tagline for our entire project. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Emily, for coming and talking to us. No problem. And if I decide that I am going to one day have a baby, I'll come back. Yeah, come, back and, <laughs> come back and update us. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> We have the rare pleasure of having Walter Shapiro in the room, in the flesh today, rather than speaking from a phone in a hotel somewhere. Walter, it's really good to see you. How are you doing? Oh, well, it's a thrill to be here. You're catching me somewhere between New Hampshire and Iowa, which is a line that I can say up until February 3rd when the Iowa caucuses will happen. So we're going to check in on the state of the uh, 2020 race for the Democratic nomination, which Walter is covering for the New Republic. And uh, I think you answer this question quite often, but how many presidential elections have you covered? This is number 11. (laughs) And one of these days I'm going to get it right. Walter, tell me a little bit more about yourself, your biography. Well, first of all, I really like moonlight walks along the beach and dancing to romantic music. But in addition, the first campaign I covered was chunks of the 1980 campaign for the Washington Post. Then I covered 84 for Newsweek, 88 and 92 for Time, whereas Time Magazine's person on the Clinton plane. Then 96, 2000, and 2004, I was columnist for USA Today. And 2008, Salon Washington Bureau Chief, 2012, Yahoo News, 2016, Roll Call, and 2020, The New Republic. So over the last month or two, the field's narrowed quite a bit, but the same candidates have been leading the polls for a while now. What are you expecting as you head to Iowa? There are two things to remember. Every national poll you're looking at is based on a lie. There is no such thing as a national primary. And as a result, 
since we go Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, the fact is the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary will have a galvanizing effect on national numbers and that they often just jump by 10 or 15 points when someone is acclaimed a winner or better than expected or weaker than expected. So that's number one. Number two, I always love asking people this question. Tell me what the next number in this sequence is. 140,000, 240,000, 180,000. Those are roughly the turnout numbers for the last three Iowa caucuses, which is a way of saying that since no one knows what the fourth number in that sequence is, <laughs> every Iowa poll is probably polling lots of people who will not attend the caucuses. So those results don't yeah. matter that much. What's your experience having been out on the campaign trail and having attended some of these debates in person of the general feeling among other reporters and people around the campaigns about Biden's candidacy? This is a hard one. If you really took a poll of most seasoned reporters, the guess is that Biden is not going to make it to the nomination. Somewhere I wrote that he reminded me of Tantalus, the figure in Greek mythology who was always so close to the goal in water up to his neck which would disappear as soon as he bent down to drink or fruit right above his reach. <laughs> and there is a sense of Joe Biden is doomed to come very close to the Oval Office and never take up residency. I may be overreacting here, but most of the support for Biden, certainly in Iowa, New Hampshire, with a very low minority population, is the dutiful support. Mm -hmm. As a major supporter of Biden in Iowa said to me, well, Joe's done a lot for me over the years, a lot of favors. I couldn't live with myself if I wasn't for him. <laughs> that is not exactly that's the not, ringing endorsement. Yes, that's not exuberance, right? That's not, yeah. <laughs> He's had this pretty solid level of support generally polling top in the national polls, but as you said, there is no national primary. But I do think I can see a way in which, even if his campaign is sort of saying, well, don't expect us to, you know, we might not win Iowa, but I can really see it happening if what happens is he does poorly in Iowa, that like a lot of that national number does fall as people try to find the next electable person. The real problem is support can really disappear with a less than expected showing in Iowa, New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. I remember when the person running New Hampshire for Howard Dean in 2004, a week before Iowa and two weeks before the New Hampshire primary, took me into the headquarters and showed me late at night, totally off the record, the crown jewels of the Dean campaign. They're number one. They're ones in Manchester, New Hampshire. They're hardest, most dedicated supporters. And this was a good operation. So they were not overly optimistic. Mm -hmm. These were people who really believed in Howard Dean. And there were 5,500 of them. After Howard Dean collapsed, finished third in the Iowa caucuses, and then the famous Dean scream afterwards... Howard Dean got 3,800 votes in Manchester. <laughs> so what I'm saying is here is a really smart operation doing the best groundwork imaginable 
and they lost a third of their most dedicated supporters between Iowa and New Hampshire. That has taught me how much one primary affects the other. Mm -hmm. And of course, in 2008, Hillary Clinton had every major African-American elected official in South Carolina endorsing her. Mm-hmm. And no one wanted to stick their neck out for this outsider named Barack Obama until Barack Obama won Iowa. Yep. And as a result, Hillary lost South Carolina by 20 plus points and there lost the nomination. Yeah, that's exactly the one I remember. The Iowa victory was like, oh, it's actually safe to vote for this guy. Yeah. Right? Is there anything else from prior campaigns that sticks out as something to be mindful of? Yeah. Gary Hart is sort of my ghost of campaign mistakes past, (laughs) emblematic figure. I was working for Newsweek, covering my real first big campaign in 84 as their lead political writer. And news magazines in those days would always hedge their bets before a big primary like New Hampshire, because not everyone would get the magazine until after the results were in. Mm But, oh, I was on top of my game. I'm not going to hedge. No hedging for Shapiro. We knew what was going to happen, and we're going to move the ball forward. So I wrote, Walter Mondale's lead in New Hampshire appears unassailable. It appeared unassailable until people voted. And as I'm getting to New Hampshire on primary day, out of touch with everyone, as the exit polls are leaking that Hart has won by a double-digit margin, I check into the political hotel of the moment, the Sheridan Wayfarer. I meet a magazine colleague, the first human being I see, and his opening words to me were, you blew it. (laughs) (laughs) That, if you want a reason why I'm not writing off candidates like Klobuchar, It is the memory of Gary Hart, who is about at 3% in the polls at this point in 1983, winning New Hampshire and almost winning the nomination in 1984. And it reminds you of how fast things can change. And it is why the You Blew It line is something that resonates in my ear 35 years later, (laughs) every time I sit down to write the equivalent of Mondale's lead in New Hampshire appears unassailable. (laughs) It's a really good journalistic lesson, I think, for all of us. (laughs) Humility, you never lose with humility. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Walter, for joining us. Oh, always a pleasure. And thus, we will file this podcast away as the podcast in which the political reporter failed to mention the person who's going to win the Democratic nomination. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who's it going to be? I don't know. (laughs) Oh, okay. But But since there are a whole bunch of candidates who we didn't mention, clearly it will be either him or her. Right. Uh, thank you for listening to what's the name of our podcast? <laughs> thank you for listening to the politics of everything from the New Republic and um, like us on I don't know how it works. This is why we script for this pod. iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts, right? That's what yeah. I always say. Please tell your friends, your family, your loved ones. Air us out of your car windows with the volume turned up. Don't tell your children. <laughs> Don't listen to this podcast with small children (laughs) who may want a brother or a sister. Nor the elderly. (laughs) I'm Alex Perrine. I'm Laura Marsh. And this is The Politics of Everything.